Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Hello and welcome to Massive Small Stories. Uh, my name is Richard Ingleton and I'm here with Kelvin Campbell. Um, this is the second in a series of two interviews with Kelvin just to understand what Massive Small is. And, and Kelvin, you're an urbanist and a writer. I know what a writer is. I'm not sure I know what an urbanist is. So would you care to explain? Well, firstly, thank you, Richard, for uh, for doing this. Um I think, I think when we spoke last time, we felt we didn't get into the details. So I think it's quite nice that we've spent a bit more time just drilling down to the detail. Um, an urbanist is defined in the, in the Oxford Dictionary as a specialist in urban planning or urban design. And that's effectively what I, what I am. But I think urbanism, for me, means something a bit more than just the science of, of the profession. It's about the qualities of places and the qualities that, that exist between people, place and politics, which is largely what this uh, whole podcast series is all about. So I see myself as a person immersed in this kind of world or, or convinced that the qualities that exist within this kind of world are worthwhile fighting for. Yeah, and, and so just to dig a little bit deeper, so people might be listening to this podcast, maybe they're listening to it in a tent, maybe they're in a little hamlet, maybe they're in a village, a market town, um, maybe they're in a big city. So how would they identify whether they're in an urban environment? What, what, what features distinguish you know, a campsite from an urban environment? I think campsites slightly different. Um, I, I often say that if if two things come together in proximity with a purpose, they create, they create an urban situation. So a village is an urban situation in a rural setting. Yeah. Its purpose is to probably serve the rural area, but it has the qualities of urbanism that uh, you can look at and identify and, and, uh, and assess. And, um, and I think that's, that's what we talk about. We get confused. We always think that this is about a rural versus urban issue. But as soon as people come together, they create an urban situation. Yeah. So, so for the purpose of people li listening to this, you're all in an urban settlement, so it's relevant to all of you. Is that what it we is hope? Probably not the guy in the tent, <laughs> yeah, because the, I think he's probably on his own somewhere, and uh, he's probably looking to escape into a rural setting. But um, where, where we live in a, in a, small, a small village has all the qualities of, of urbanity, of urbanism. Um, we have uh, a rich mix of uses in the place. We have a broad range of people in the community. we inclusive. We have got a range of diversity that happens here as well. And the place is, has grown up over time. And it, therefore, for me, it represents all the qualities of urbanism that we, we want to find in a place. And they're the kind of places that we want to go on holiday to because they, have, they demonstrate all these sort of qualities. And then there's the cultural aspects as well that come into it, which I think are, are also important. Yeah, so so there's no value statement urban. There's, there's no such thing as a well. There is such a thing, I'm sure, as a good urban and a bad urban and everything in between. But but I understand now what you mean by it's it's people living together with a sort of some kind of collective purpose or reason for being in that place. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we can't have bad urbanism. And I yes, think we've been particularly I'm sure good. We'll come to that. <laughs> particularly good at doing bad urbanism for yeah. the past three generations. Um, and I think that's largely where Massa Small has its roots. I think. Yeah. So 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 yes, we why don't we get into 
the, the podcast is called Massive Small Stories. And um, why don't we get into what Massive Small means? Where did that idea come from? I think it started as a reaction to um, the work I was doing at the time. And I think if I go back to the seeds of it, the seeds were probably sown at the beginning of my career when I was working in informal settlements and and um, and saw the effect of of urbanisation at work quite rapidly at work and how these places transitioned over time into into real bits of town, real bits of city, um, versus what happened, say, post-1970s, early 1980s, where there was a complete shift in the way in which we dealt with the making of cities. And um, I think we increasingly be started treating the city as a machine. Uh, we started using statistical tools. We started using mechanical tools or mechanisms to to assess a place rather than the software of a place we saw the hardware of the place all the time as being critical and and i think as a result of that a whole lot of things changed certainly in the professions what what, what do you mean by hardware and software give, give me an example of a city hardware or urban hardware and urban software i think the city hardware would be the buildings the physical buildings the physical spaces um the infrastructure of a place represents the hardware as the software is actually the people dimension that activate the place and give it kind of a, a purpose and, and other things. And then the, the what I call the operating system is probably what I call the political system you operate in. And I use political here as a small p, which is about what is the dynamic of leadership, what's the dynamic of civic governance in a place that gives rise to the qualities that we all want in a, in a, in a, in a, say in a great neighbourhood. How do we apply those to, to a place? So um, I think, you know, Coming back to the thought about where where we where we would focus on when we start looking at um, the qualities of urbanism, I think we'd see all these three things coming together, and we've been too busily focused on the hardware of a place, and I think that's probably the thing that's happened largely in the professions. As the professions have moved away from uh, the urban professions who had a sort of strong public purpose into being what I call quite often loosely product designers. They just saw the hardware of a place as being successful. So if I designed a nice building, it'll be okay. It would solve the problem. Mm. And yet design doesn't always do that. Design just solves a physical a, a physical problem. It doesn't solve a social problem. Yeah, so you identify this sort of triumvirate of politicians, policymakers, um, which you call the operating system. You've then got the place, the hardware, the buildings, the yeah. infrastructure, and then you've got the, the people, the society, the activities that are going on within that space. I understand that triumvirate. How then does that relate to this notion of massive small? What is massive small? Well, I think all of those things are made up out of hundreds and hundreds of diverse things. And we've been particularly good um, at trying to reduce the city into small component parts. And we box things into narrow sort of fields. And we recognise then that uh, we forget things. We forget the, the, the dynamic of a city. So we believe through our top-down solutions, which has been largely imposed post-war, um, that we can create the conditions that people really want. But actually through that process, we deny the individual expression of places. And I think that's what we're looking for in Massive Small, is to recognise the power of the, of the many that go up to make a place, mm. which is what history has shown us. You know, 300 generations of history showed us that we could build the most fantastic places and we could go through the evolution of of, uh, of things like style, from classicism to neoclassicism to um, to, to to different forms, uh, and and all all the time we were taking evolutionary processes and perfecting these to to try and make places, and then somewhere on the line we came and interrupted this process, and I think that's what I'm looking for: is how did we do things before, 
and how did we and how do we pick up the threads of that evolution? And this doesn't mean a Prince Charles historical rant about let's go back prehistory and build prehistory, because it's not about that at all. Because what gave rise to those places that people value were years and years of evolution. Mm. They're not things you can feel, freely transplant and say, well, we like that, let's rebuild that. Mm. We've got to get back onto the track where we find our own, I use the word vernacular, it's probably the best, best description of it. It's our best language for building towns and cities and neighbourhoods. So, so, so we've got uh, these three dynamics at play. Can you, which I, I guess will have always existed, there's always been somebody who said these are the laws and the policies, it might have been a king or a baron, or, yeah. and, and then you've got people that live there and things that are built there. So we've always had those three things. That Absolutely. makes sense to me. Can you identify the point when it started to go wrong, or has it always been a bit wrong? Or is it more wrong now than it was historically? Can you, can you put a, a sort of... Turning I think point. I think I you know the turning point which I probably expressed before was the turning point post-war, yeah. where um, people were looking for big ideas to reconstruct, and nothing but good intentions at work. Uh, and the two big theories around were the modern city movement and the garden city movement, and they're the ones that drove the thinking of the new planning system that was spawned throughout the world. And uh, the underlying premise in that system was let's build a social utopia, let's build a place that um, we'll all love and uh, you know, uh, we'll all value. But in many ways, through that process, we actually killed life in general by, by imposing the single top-down view. And I think that's what's happened in many places. We can only experience this around where we live. You know, look at Aylesbury as a, as a town, uh, even what it's doing today. Uh, it's affected, um, uh, you know, a neighbourhood doesn't exist in any real form. It's really a set of housing schemes that are built in these little sort of blobs all the way down through through um, through some sort of radial route uh, that takes you into Aylesbury. Um, and I, I think what's actually happened through the through the process of thinking, we've reduced the city to small elements. In other words, the hardware is more important than, say, the operating system. The operating system hasn't really changed because it's very difficult for that operating system, which is the political system, to change. Because in our world, it takes a long time to introduce change. You require parliamentary acts to change some of these things. They're not things that that will change quite easily. And I think the other thing is that we've kind of lost sense of the social um, aspect, in other words, the, the people aspect of a place, because we've basically said, well, if we build it, people will come. Mm. And therefore we solve the problem, we solve their, their housing needs. Uh, we haven't solved their social needs or their societal needs, but we might have solved their living needs. And I, I suppose the timing of this is, not only just after a war where uh, things needed to be rebuilt, we had to reconstruct because much had been destroyed, not just here, but across Western Europe and, and further afield. Um, but it's also a time when populations are starting to grow That's and it. life expectancy is increasing and family sizes, whilst birth rate is down, survival rate is up. So, so the political class, for want of a good word, I guess... We're in a hurry to create environments for, for people to live in, whereas previously maybe those environments were able to build more slowly and through a series of smaller steps rather than these big, let's build a well-in-garden city. Is, is that fair to say? Or I think it's fair, to, it's fair to make that assumption, but it's not necessarily true. So at the height of our council housing boom, which would have been in the 1960s, um, we didn't build as many houses as we did at the height of our Victorian housing boom. Right. In fact, almost, I think, about 40% of the houses 
uh, would have been as a proportion, only only forty percent. So Victorian Victorian times was was an explosion. It was really the industrial revolution. It was the first oh. first time that we created um, an urban a strong urban solution. Uh, prior to that, it was pretty much quite random, unplanned. But as soon as we started planning cities, particularly in in the post uh, or it's the start of the industrial revolution, we started to create this explosion of of um, of of, uh, of cities. And those places have served us incredibly well. Uh, there have been instances where some of the working class terraces haven't been as successful as, as we imagine, and they've been demolished. But by and large, Victorian um, England or Victorian Britain has stayed pretty much intact. Yeah, and and so what did Victor- the Victorians do well that the Elizabethans didn't do so well in, a, in an English context, which I guess to some extent is similar around the world, right? It's very similar, I'd imagine, yeah. I mean, the first real sway that came in um, was, I'd say, Georgian, mm. where there was this kind of borrowing from Italy, the Vitruvian principles, which became embedded in in uh, the way in which we did things. But they were mainly done for the upper class. So the classic things that would have happened around Bath, that might have been happened in Back Bay and Boston, or it might have happened in uh, in other towns and cities, was this kind of wave, this kind of recognition that we are urbanising, and we started to urbanise quite rapidly because of the Industrial Revolution, and therefore we need a building form, or we need a planning form uh, to to guide this. And I think the Vitruvian principles, which was about proportion and harmony, and those sorts of things, uh, became quite critical. And they became embodied in pattern books. There weren't architects involved in those days. Architects tended to do you know, the, the high-end housing. But at most of the time, it was the master builder working from a pattern book of details and, uh, and working with a bunch of craftsmen. And, um, and that's the way they built, they built these places. They built these places in a, in, a, in a fairly regular way, slightly different. They built them in small numbers, but collectively. Uh, they weren't built en masse. We didn't build an entire neighborhood in, a, in two or three years. And in fact, the, the, probably the best example of, of, uh, of, Georgian, um, of Georgian Britain was the new town in Edinburgh, which everyone, you go look at it, it feels like it was all built together, but it took 30 years to build. Mm. But people were building within this language, this pattern language. And, um, and that's what we've kind of failed to understand, is we've lost that sight of that, those things that made those places quite beautiful, which was the, the proportion and the harmony and the, the use of materials and, and, um, and the depth of the facade, all those sorts of things that were, were valued at the time and took years to evolve. This wasn't the single designer that did it. It was someone just perfecting something and then someone saying, we like that, let's borrow it, let's add to it. And these places evolved over time. And then that worked and dovetailed with the craftsmen at the time as well and also the building industry at the time, which was completely distributed. You wouldn't have seen a major contractor. You would see very few major contractors. There would mainly be small builders working en masse in a distributed system across the country. And that's what Victorian, when I'm talking the Victorian housing boom, was largely driven by many small people doing these things. Interesting. So I just want to blame somebody. You know, I want to blame the policymakers or the people or the the buildings. Um, so so listening to, just because that's fun. So listening to this, do do we blame the the building industry for what happened in the sixties and the quality and the pace with which communities were built, or do we blame the policymakers, or is blame just the the wrong the wrong i'm just trying to be provocative is that the wrong expression i think you know i think it's probably easy to say let's try and blame someone at the time but i, I actually don't think there were any bad motives there mm. um and i think i got caught up in that when i started architecture i kind of believed in the big housing estates the thames meads which i did my dissertation on the thames meads in, in um, southeast london 
Um, I saw that as being, you know, this, this is a masterstroke. And yet years later when I went and worked on Thamesmead, if I'm talking about in the past 10, 12 years, uh, what a nightmare place it was. It was classic social utopia, which had become social dystopia. Um, and that's what I think what happened with a lot of these places. They started with good intentions and they, they in a short space of time, became completely dysfunctional. So when it comes to blaming um, the, the, the time, you know, I often say that we lived in the narrative of our times. The narrative of our times is let's rebuild quickly, let's get back mm. together, let's get on our feet again. Uh, you can imagine the destruction. And you can imagine someone sitting, say, in Bethnal Green in a, in a small terrace house uh, with uh, you know, one up, one down and um, very, very little services saying, we're going to build you a new town called Stevenage or Basildon and we're going to shift you out there and Timmy can ride his bike and it'll be fantastic. Uh, I guarantee that every person would have said, yes, I'd love that. Uh, I think what came with that as well was things like um, Streets in the Sky. So the Aylesbury Estate, which is one of the projects I worked on, uh, it was the classic one that Tony Blair walked around when he was first, um, uh, uh, first elected as Prime Minister and said, we're going to change this place. It's the one that spooks and all those, those um, you know, if you, if you want a dysfunctional place to shoot a movie, you went to Aylesbury Estate. And, um, you know, those places were built with incredibly good intentions. And, um, and I, I think they failed. And they failed dismally because they really didn't recognise the changing dynamics of people or the changing dynamics of family or the changing demographics in our population, what our population's needs are. That, 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 that makes it so you're not giving me my tabloid headline. That's fine. Um, but you are saying that with hindsight, we can look and see the mistakes we made in this so post-war period ver- versus this sort of organic um, growth that had perhaps happened in cities before then. So, so, and you've you've touched on some of the mistakes. Can can you see? Can you describe for for somebody who's living in an urban environment, which is most of us by your definition, what? what I would see and identify that and say, well, that's a mistake or that's good. So what, when you, you're an expert in, in urban design, what would you look at and say, that doesn't work versus that does work with the benefit of hindsight? Well, I think how, how ben- would I know? Well, the benefit of hindsight, um, there's a very good program on Thames Mead, which actually said the day it opened, it opened with everyone was employed. Um, everyone, you know, everyone had to have a job, although you were living in council housing. Uh, you had rules you had to follow like hanging out your washing, and it was incredibly rigorously um, policed. And then within a short space of time, it changed. The dynamics changed. Uh, More unemployed people, uh, youth crime emerged. Thamesmead is where Clockwork Orange was shot. So, you know, if you talk about looking for a dysfunctional place, then Clockwork Orange found it to to some degree. Um, And I think it's to do with uh, a whole range of things. I think it's to do with group dynamics as well. If you stick 80 people who are really suffering from their own sets of pressures into one single building with one single door, you're going to find pressures uh, that explode. And I think that's what happened in many of these housing estates. And many of them, um, and I've been party to probably the worst housing estates in the country, or I say party to the demolition of many, some of the worst housing estates in the country, um, all suffered from that same, same set of problems, is they purely saw the solution for people as a building solution, not as a social solution. So they weren't building community or they weren't building neighbourhoods, they were just building buildings. And therefore you saw the rise of the big contractor, you know, the George Wimpies and the Taylor Woodrows and stuff, who, who came along and they came in with their own system building, their own concrete, um, off-shutter concrete um, solutions and government said, fine, we want that, build us lots of it. And that's what happened. In the 60s we really peaked in terms of our 
of our, um, uh, our house building, the Sydney Council house building. But then it tailed off towards um, you know the start of the Thatcher years, where we started seeing, let's shift this much more to the private sector to solve the problem. So government building in those days was absolutely massive. And I can remember when I came to the UK in 85, there probably would have only been two architectural practices who were doing housing. Now there are thousands. And it's to do with the fact that most housing was done in local authorities, the city architects department. In fact, the people I worked for, um, the, one, of the, one of these architectural practices when I came over here, all came from the LGLC um, uh, architects department who did some incredible stuff you know, at the time. So housing wasn't done by architects. It was done by builders, largely master builders who knew their craft quite well. And then post-war, it became the big contractors who did it. Okay, and so craft, craftsmanship fell away. Yeah, so I'm hearing I'm hearing something about sort of density of living and and making it a housing problem to solve rather than a community problem. So what else might I see? So let's say I live in a, a, a village or a town that isn't particularly densely built. It's not got high-rise blocks. What else might I see that would be clues to sort of poor urbanism? Um, density is not the only factor. It's one of the factors. You could live in a suburban um, council housing estate and I remember working in a place near Doncaster which was absolutely rife with crime, rife with probably the worst social problems you've ever seen but actually the houses were quite nice so I think it has this combination of people and place together and then the purpose of this place the purpose of this place had gone it used to be a mining community it now just became a commuter commuter, uh, community and um, there weren't jobs available so these places suffered from a whole set of other dysfunctions. And in, in, in some ways, um, their environment worked against those people. I often say that council housing quite often made the poor poorer. Uh, there was a wonderful story I read, um, must have read at, at, uh, in the 19, 1980s, 1990s recession we had, um, which was called Down and Out in Social Utopia. And I think it was set in Milton Keynes. Uh, or it was certainly a new town of some sort, and it was about uh, a guy who gets made redundant from his his business park uh, um, nearby. And he says, look, I'm an enterprising guy, I'll get another job. And of course the jobs weren't around. Uh, they took away the keys of his two-litre Cavalier, and uh, he realised that, hold on, he was dependent on two cars because the wife had to take the, car, the kids to school. And, and he said, well, don't worry, I'm enterprising, I can go to the under the arches, which represents sort of that grey world where you can start your business and... Everyone turns a blind, and he realizes there's no grey world in uh, in Milton Keynes. Or I can go to the last shop on the high street, and there's no high street. So he he ultimately says that his environment is conspiring against him to keep him terminally unemployed. Whereas in a rich, um, uh, rich mix, socially diverse um, urban neighbourhood, he would find those opportunities. There'd always be little slots where he could find that. But in this sanitised, pure world of the new town. None of those opportunities existed. In fact, he even says that his house wasn't suited for the purpose of starting his job. His house had become so tailored to the purpose of living that it couldn't take on the functions of um, of the business he wanted to start. So, it's, yeah, so it's interesting. So, so you've got these communities, let's call them suburbs, on, on, on in these big towns. So, what road then? What role then do roads, rail, infrastructure, good and bad, play in in the forming of these? Again, what, 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 why would I, how would I say that's a bad road, that's a bad train station, that's a good train station? That's a, how, how, how again do I identify between 
in, in an urban environment my sort of non-housing infrastructure is good or bad uh, some roads have destroyed cities or destroyed towns and the best example is Aylesbury the ring road around Aylesbury how it destroyed uh, the city centre um, and we did that we did that in a number of our towns a number of our cities where the, that ring road the inner ring road was the one that seemed to destroy urban fabric and you created this sort of severance between the centre and the surrounding areas we've done that quite extensively but most roads are there for a purpose, you know, and they, they provide frontage to something. It's quite often not the road's problem. It's the relationship between that building and the road that's the, that's the critical issue. And what we also did is we turned our backs on roads. So once again, you can drive through large swathes of Aylesbury and you'll see backyards onto, onto roads. Or you'll see this sort of what I call space left after, after planning, which is this redundant green space which appears you know, to well-kept, but it's actually quite dangerous space. So we lost that idea of a road provides a frontage to something because we saw the road uh, coming back to the 1960s, 1970s as sort of a piping diagram for cars. Let's make the cars flow as quickly as possible through this. And we denied the relationship between the building and the, and the road. And the other thing that happened is I think architects were quite, um, they were quite interested in getting rid of the road. In fact, a lot of the early modernist city planning had um, slogans like kill the street. Uh, so uh, Le Courbusier, because he's famous, he was the, probably the, the master of city planning. Let's let's get rid of the road. But actually, at the end of the day, road is the lifeblood, or movement is the lifeblood. Road is the vehicle that is the point that allows that movement to happen. And I've always said movement is like glue. You know, it flows down a channel, and when it stops, things stick to it. Okay. So and when it sticks to it, it starts taking on a sort of a life of its own. You know, the high street starts working, and we haven't built high streets for thirty years. We don't see a high street. Uh, it's it's the first the first thing is let's create this mixed use community, and it ends up with a, a Tesco Metro or something like that as being its centre. Or quite often, there's a lot of places that you read read about today. Uh, the place you go and get your groceries is at the at the service station. There's a Waitrose at the service station. So we've lost this idea of um, this rich mix that exists in a place. It's purely housing with one or two blobs of. Of things that might be there, and I guess that you know that that makes me think about work and workplace because there's no high street in these places, or if there is, it's you know collectible. So this 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 notion of the commuter is born. You know, I live here, I sleep here, but I work there, and I have to get to there, and that's a road or a train. So, what's your view on the workplace within the community? You, you know, when you look back, would would we have been better to think about light industry or some kind of business enterprise in these suburban? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the birth of planning was to get away, get away from the dark satanic mills. You know, that was the sort of the, the birth of it, this idea that um, there was a lot of pollution in our, in our cities at the time, uh, lack of infrastructure, lack of sanitation. And therefore, the, the new town, as it was um, sold to people, was we're going to provide this for you. It's gonna, we're going to get away from it. And through that, we actually sanitized. We, created, we purely focused on the purpose of living. There might have been an industrial estate bolted on. But every place needs to have a purpose. And your purpose is generally determined by accessibility. You happen to be at the crossroads. That's the reason a place starts quite often. Or you happen to be at a harbour, you know, where you can stop and you can, you know, transfer goods from one to another. There's always a, re there's always a geographical reason. But also another reason is what's the reason for this place to happen? What's the economy of this place? It can be a mining community. And if the mines go away, it ceases to become that community. And we try to keep alive vast tracts of some of the mining housing uh, for years. And they failed dismally. Because the place doesn't have a purpose anymore, so I think we have to recognise that that uh, that cities and towns and 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 you know, urbanism is like a pot of boiling porridge. You know, it just bubbles and it explodes and it 
So places change all the time. Mm. Um, we don't necessarily have to keep them alive. If we have to try and find a purpose for a place, uh, it's always a difficult thing for governments to do, and they try and do it. They try and do it through um, economic strategies. Uh, let's get Nissan to relocate to Sunderland or something like that, or let's do let's get Hoover to go to somewhere else. And and these jobs are quite fragile jobs because they move quite quickly, and then the place loses its purpose once again. So um, you must have that rich mix of opportunity. And that's what I believe the neighborhood has. The neighborhood has that opportunity where anyone wanted to start a business, and most businesses today are clean businesses anyway, uh, and probably not as noisy as we imagine, um, could start in a, in a neighborhood as part of maybe classic example. If you go one street back from Kensington High Street into the Mews, there's small, place, small uh, places in Mews that are fixing up cars, and uh, you know, there's, there's an industry at work in those Mews. And that's part of that rich mix that I think is quite important. And we've actually denied that in what we've done. And so, so just to build on that, then we, we, we've talked about where I live, where I work, how I get there, where I might shop. What about the other maybe more essential elements of a social fabric, the school, the place of worship, um, the playing fields, the woods, the river, um, the access to nature? How, how do they all fit into this? I think they're all parts of planning. I mean, uh, if you talk about the qualities of a good place, then the qualities that you want are, as you said, access to nature is a critical one. Mm. There's probably no better example of access to nature than Central Park in New York, which is phenomenal. You know, the guys to think of that scale, of this idea of a, it's almost a bloody national park, it's so big, sitting in the centre of, of the city. But it was seen as critical to the success of New York. And I think we've got exactly the same thing. We have the ability to to look at some of the urban models we've used in London, which are absolutely fantastic. The you know the Garden Square. Um, I lived in Marylebone for a couple of years on uh, between Marylebone, between Bryanston Square and um, and uh, and Montague Square, and these were fantastic bits of ecology that existed in the city centre, and they gave you that relief from that relentless urbanism that exists in some places. Um, and they're models we've forgotten. We've forgotten about you know because we've we've then gone and said. Actually, we have a formula for, for how we do parks. And the formula is this. And for the house builder to see, actually, we just put a park where, we've, where there's cheap land rather than let's put a park where we want it to be. So we've lost that, we've lost that element of planning as well. Mm. We, we've, we've forgotten that these things are, are critical. Most schools started as community schools or as church schools. And then they evolved and they were probably taken over by the state around about the same time, 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. Um, and the school is part of, that, uh, part of that whole fabric of society. Um, I've been interested recently in some guys who have been doing some work on what they call scale-free schools, which is, do you actually need a school building or is this rather a network of learning that exists in a community? Um, you know, maybe there's a decentralized school of some sort. And uh, there's lots of evidence that show that shiny buildings don't necessarily solve the educational problem in some places. I think you have to change the educational system to facilitate creativity in, in, in children to make a place to, to make a place really work well. Brilliant. So I, I feel like um, you should probably do a podcast on Massive Small. And Oh, you are. So that's I good. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. That, that's, I now see why this is an important topic um, because it affects everybody. Um, and it's multifaceted and we've got our triumvirate of elements that need to work perfectly together. We've got lessons to learn from the past, but also the future's changing. So we've got that to predict. It's not like we're dealing with a static environment now. Um, so I think I understand why you've done this 
why you've been interested in this. Is there something particular about the now of all of this for you? Is there a reason why you're starting this now or you just didn't get around to it 10 years ago? I think there's always, um, I like to refer to as the perfect storm where you get the alignment of the stars, where things start happening. And I think we're sitting with that time now where the triumvirate, all three of the, of the legs of that triumvirate are suffering badly. And they have suffered badly for some time. I, I've often said the way we plan, the way we design, the way we develop our towns, cities, neighborhoods, quarters, whatever you want to call them, um, is doomed to failure. And I believe it has been failing for a good couple of years now. Is we've just had the money to overcome the structural problems of the city. Whereas in other places they don't have that money. They've got on and tried to find solutions. And they've generally done those. The solutions have generally been informal. And it's been people doing stuff despite government rather than because of government. So... I'd like to think that we're sitting at a time now where we're grappling with, say, the permanent housing crisis that most of the world is in and um, not wanting, not knowing what to do next. And I see a government, and I see governments, not just this government, I see other governments literally caught in the headlights saying, what do we do next? You know, we've gone down this road. We've tried to shift, uh, we've tried to make small shifts all the time. Um, and uh, actually, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, it's the system we imposed in the 19. 1940s, 1950s, that is sitting there as uh, the underlying bugs in the system. And unless we start addressing those sorts of things and have a decent conversation about it, we're never going to solve the problems of urban society today. So it's a combination of um, politicians caught in the headlight. I mean, I've had direct experience of this. I, I went to number 10, it was about a year, two years ago, um, when we started experiencing a lot of public pressure around how we solve the housing, housing crisis. It was really at the forefront of, of, of the news almost every day. And, um, and what I saw was a, a bunch of people just caught in the headlights and they really didn't understand what the solution was. They were looking at numbers and uh, saying, you know, how do we build a, what's, what's the financial fix or what's the eco fix or what's the design fix or what's the construction fix we can, we can impose to deliver these hundred, these, these million houses. And, um, recognizing that it wasn't about that at all. Um, it was about the thinking. The crisis wasn't in housing. The crisis was in thinking. And uh, it was very difficult for them to understand that they couldn't just shift the, sh shift the deck chairs on the Titanic. They couldn't just make a small fiddle and hope that it would uh, it'd solve the problem. They really need to look at this thing comprehensively and recognize that we had changed. And things that were, were developed for different times and, uh, and for different reasons and probably had no no role in, in today's society. But politicians seem reluctant to do that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because whenever I hear they were going to build a million homes, I mean, politicians love that, right? Big, big claim, I'm going to build a million homes. My thought is, well, if you live in a nice place, you nobody wants it ruined by a million homes on their doorstep. And if you're one of those people that's going to live in one of those million homes, you want it to be a nice place. You want it to be a nice urban environment. And it's hard to get that message across in a soundbite. You know, how, how do you say I'm going to build, you know, wonderful urban spaces? Who, who's going to buy that? But that's really, I think, what this is about, right? This is what you're trying to get across is how, how do we improve and build? Because we have to, people have to live somewhere. So how do we build and improve the way we do that? Is that right? Well, I think that that was how we... we we started thinking about masses small was um, is there another way is there another way of 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 solving the problem is this government's problem only to solve 
And government only took on that responsibility post-Second post, um, World War. Uh, previous to that, housing was a distributed system. Education was a distributed system. Healthcare was a distributed system. But by centralising it, we effectively put government at the centre of this all. And it's very difficult for them to imagine how they change. So, I mean, the classic one on, um, on say, uh, National Health Service was it was actually the small GPs that were incredibly successful in, uh, in the pandemic and getting vaccine, vaccine rolled out and getting that process rolled out. Yet we centralised their decision-making. Uh, that's what we've done in our reforms in the health service in the past couple of years. That Every time there's a change, we centralise further and further. We might talk about decentralisation. Um, I remember when David Cameron came in, uh, the idea of the new localism was spoken about. But really what it was, was actually just devolving government to the local level. They still wanted to command and control every outcome. So they introduced neighbourhood planning, which we've been victim of here in, in our little town, um, which was basically just another, another form of control. Rather than saying, let's just allow people, let's, let's allow the collective wisdom of people to come forward and solve some of these problems for us. So Master Small was really, really based on how do we reconcile the conflicts that exist between top-down and bottom-up, and how do we release the potentials? And the potentials are there because they've always been there. We don't have to prove it. There's no proof of concept that we have to show someone because for 300 generations we did it well, incredibly well. I'm desperate when I listen to this to get to the solution, to figure out the all sorts of things that we could do to make the lived environment better um, for, for people. So I, I see the... But, but that's manifest, and I think that's why you're doing the podcast, right? Yeah, so that's what we do, just, just start the debate on something. You know, what's, what's really missing, and it's, I think it's been missing since the late 60s, 1970s, was any new urban theory or any new urban theorists out there talking about a new way of doing things. Yeah, we've got on bandwagons like sustainability and resilience and all those sorts of things, or urban renaissance at the time, but they tended to be sort of soundbite-type things. They weren't, they weren't anything of substance. And in fact, in the past year, three of the greatest urban theorists that, ex that, that were around, John Habrakan, John Turner, and Christopher Alexander, died. So we actually lost three incredibly good people, and we stopped listening to them. And if you go back and read the work they, they, they were involved with in, say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was absolutely incredible work. But there was no, there was no um, appetite to listen to what they were saying, because the government believed they knew best, they were going to solve the problem. Well, at the moment, they don't have a solution to the problem. So let's go back and rediscover what these guys are saying. And that's what I found when we started working on Masses Small, is there's, actually, there's a lot of good thinking out there, but the perfect storm wasn't around when they were writing. Okay, So things were misaligned. Uh, politics were probably stronger than they were. There were probably much more focus on social purpose amongst politics. There was much more focus on public purpose and planning at the time. Um, and what's changed now is we've lost all this. We've lost this, um, this understanding of what drives the change. So the change is driven purely by a numbers game. We have to meet these numbers. And it's, it's quite logical. If you, start, if you get caught in the headlights of big numbers, you will start looking for big sites or big solutions. Like classically, Keir Starmer announcing at the Labour conference recently the solution to housing is to build two new towns. No one will ever build two new towns. Because we, we're not in those, what we call the beverage years, we're not in that sort of 1945 to 1979 years where we had strong government saying, this is what we want to do. And we'll never get back to that. So this idea of throwing out a little sideline like, let's build a, let's build a new town, 
where we know we've been incredibly unsuccessful. You know, people might argue that Milton Keynes is not as bad as I'm probably making it out to be, but these places weren't um, weren't creating the kind of the urban qualities that we really want from from our towns and cities. And there's a lot of good people around who are talking about it today. Um, Yolanda Barnes is one of the people I want to to interview on the on the podcast. Is actually she says if you look at the demographics, younger people are not looking to go and work in a business park, not looking to live in a housing estate where their parents are. They're looking to go and move into messy urban areas like the Peckhams of London or the Williamsburgs of New York. They want to. Uh, change their entire patterns. They want to exercise their lives out in coffee bars and other things. So the demographics have changed. So why are we still building some of the stuff we're building around um, Aylesbury at the moment under the banner of so-called Garden City, which is uh, obtuse. It's, it's, it's incredibly out of keeping with everything else that the market's telling us we should be doing. Yet the market, the, 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 the people who deliver cannot change. They follow one another. All follow one another. Well, if if this was such a good idea, then why isn't anyone else doing it? Hold on. Okay, so it's it's like the lemmings, uh, you know, walking towards the cliff all the time, mm. and you can't have the dialogue with them because they know best, and they're probably convinced that this is the model they have, this is the model that's worked for them, and they'll continue to drive that model until they have to jump off a cliff. So you've got this perfect storm, as you say, where policymakers, politicians are trying to hit the numbers. Um, builders, the, the world of building wants to deliver the numbers as yeah. cheaply and profitably as possible. And people just want somewhere to live and, and don't necessarily understand when they're buying a property in one of these new build areas, whether it's going to be a pleasant lived environment to live in, whether it's going to deliver a fulfilled life to them. So that's the this sort of vicious circle we're stuck in, this perfect storm we're in of, yeah. of nobody really stepping back and saying, actually, what do we want? What do we need? Um so that makes sense. You're going to explore this now over a series of podcasts with people telling stories That's it. from all different angles and all different perspectives to try and create an environment in which the new thinkers uh, can emerge and make change. I, I understand that. What, When you think about the outcome you'd like from this series of conversations, what, what, how would you describe that? What would you, what would you like to happen? The best at best it would be that we're talking about it and we're not talking about it. No one's talking about it. The professions have become so stale. They're caught in the system. And the system that effectively forced them down that sort of narrow path is, uh, has been in place for a good couple of decades now. Mm. So they're effectively at the end of, a, end of a wall. They'd probably say all of us are doing okay, we're all making our money. But actually, if you ask the question, are you really making a difference? Are you really changing the world? Are you really, which is what a majority of urban professionals came into the, into the world to do. They came into that world to make the world a better place. If you speak to most planners at the moment, the most demoralized profession you could ever speak to, no one wants to go into planning. We have a planning crisis at the moment. And the crisis, as I said before, is not just in the people, but in the crisis of thinking. We haven't come, we haven't come along and we haven't replaced that, the dream of modernist city and the Garden City, with some sort of new urban theory that works that's relevant to the times. And no one's having that dialogue. Everyone's trying to fix the system to work with the problems we have today. So it's classic, you know, solving the, looking at, looking at, the, um, at, at the symptoms, not the causes. No one's having a debate about the causes. And that's the thing that I find um, quite sad. I mean, I find, I find, you know, urban professionals are not inquisitive anymore. 
And when I came to the profession, the idea was that you would constantly be asking questions, you'd constantly be learning, you'd constantly be challenging. But the professions are all safe. They're all, you know, they're all consultants, they're all making their money, you know, they're, they're doing okay. Um, wonderful book by Mariana Mazakuta called The Big Con, which is how um, consultancy is infantilizing government because we've hollowed out government. We don't have the skill sets that exist within government to do it. So therefore, the only solution is to go back to the consultants to do the next wave and the next wave. So we've lost this ability. And therefore, government in many areas has become a procurement service rather than a service that's governing or providing the, the civil service to the politicians. We've killed that. We've killed that. We, we also killed places where people have learnt. I mean, I learnt more working for the public sector than I ever worked for the private sector because you were given a lot of responsibility you knew what your purpose was, you delivered it, and you were told to deliver. You had to deliver products. Consultancy doesn't have to deliver products. It has to deliver reports. Okay. Um, very good article uh, by Harvard Business Review saying 90% of most strategic plans fail. Okay. A good friend of mine, Rob Cowan, who was co-author with me on a number of the books we wrote, did a survey of master plans in the UK. 95% of master plans fail. So... What is this profession doing? Okay, it's delivering 5%. But lots of reports. Lots of reports. Well, when in doubt, commission someone. When in doubt, if you don't have a solution, commission someone. That's why we're saying in Mass or Small, don't over-strategize. Give it your best shot. Just write down your best shot quickly. In two weeks, you'll develop your best shot. It won't be perfect, but you'll learn quickly. As long as you're keeping that open to challenge, as long as you're enabling this change, this change to happen. So start by start, starting, learn by doing. Do it quickly, and you'll learn pretty damn quickly. But as soon as you start saying, oh, we've got to develop a brief because we have to give this out to a consultancy to, to look at, by the time the brief comes out, it's dead anyway. You know, someone's sanitized to the point that um, it doesn't mean anything. And then, of course, when it gets delivered, um, you know, everyone says, well done. And then it sits on a shelf because no one, no one can implement it because the skill sets aren't there to implement. So it is sad. Um, you've been in, in this industry a long time. You've written extensively about this subject. Um, you know, I could call you a grumpy old man. Give me some hope. What, 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 where's the hope? Well, I think I, I've always been inspired by Christopher Hitchens. Um, and everyone would know Christopher Hitchens as a kind of a, a grumpy old man. But he would say... Um, He's a seasoned contrarian, and I like I like that idea. I'm, I am contrary, um, but I'm also a rational optimist. I have enormous faith that if we start this process of not, as I said, not over-strategizing, but firstly recognizing that we have to change, and secondly saying, let's give it our first shot. Don't try and change the system. Systems take, it'll take a long time for the system to change. If you buy a, a computer, okay, um, you don't upgrade to the next uh, uh, version of that software until version 4 or 5 of that software um, has come through, version 5.5. You don't buy the beta version because you want someone to iron out the bugs. So don't, don't try and change the system. Just start. Give some, give some examples of how these things might change. Um, I think there's enormous hope if we, if we just recognize that some of these things are changed. You know, we're not sitting in that same era with the same pressures. We're not into total reconstruction like we were post-war. We're not sitting in this perfect family world of the 2.4 person um, family, which existed post-war, that the sociologist told us. Um, and we're not sitting in this kind of world where 
uh, we have to use mechanistic ways of of evaluating and, and assessing and uh, analyzing and and proving um, outcomes in our cities. There's every chance that that uh, we can, we can make those changes at this particular point in time. So I often say, let's just start. Very good. We're stuck in our ways. We need a bit of a kick up the backside. We need some new ideas to generate the action from that kick up the backside. And that's what we're going to try and provide in this podcast. That's what we're hoping to do. That's what we're hoping to do. Very good. And welcome everyone who wants to come along and uh, and fight the fight, which I think needs to be fought, actually. I think it's quite important that we do it because I think, as you said at the beginning, um, Richard, the environment is critical to all of us. We all live in it. We all understand it. You know, We all value it in particular ways. But we also come to realize that it's kind of fragile and um, it doesn't work in many instances. I agree. It's, h- it's hard to find a subject that everybody cares about and everybody cares about where they live. So it, it's everybody cares about their health, perhaps. So it is a very important subject and it should have wide appeal and hopefully we'll hear all sorts of different voices and all sorts of different ideas. Thank you very much, Kelvin. Any final comment before we welcome guests for the future no just thank you very much for doing this uh you've been a very good um interrogator <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome you can switch off the bright lights <laughs> yeah, now yeah. okay I'll, <laughs> fine i'll turn them off it's getting hot in here yeah <laughs> Thank thanks you, Kevin. <laughs>